Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us on the program today. I have a very interesting program we hope that you will stay tuned for. Uh, we are here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at richarddugan.com. The podcast broadcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and a lot of other locations. Folks are reposting our interviews, too, and I thank you so much if you've done that. Uh, it extends our reach to get to people, to let them know that we are trying to find not only those new ways of living, but also to give you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Today, uh, we also encourage you to participate. And every day this year, and uh, we're more than halfway through this year of 2020, the year of perfect vision, looking for those, uh, looking for that calm, peaceful place, that space where we can just take it easy and also listen to that still small voice that guides every one of us. Uh, it's just that each one of us gets a little different kind of guidance if we're really listening and we follow through and, as I like to say, follow the promptings. Um, get that inspiration, that uh, instruction, uh, and all of the, and the imagination, the creativity that comes with uh, going into uh, that uh, place within, that that place that you can that you reside in actually so we hope that you will take that time and also if uh, if you'd like to uh, go to our guest website we'll be giving you their uh, uh, website in just a moment so that you can continue your evolutionary process well today is sort of kind of in a way about money but about prosperity and about a lot of different things that a lot of people are looking for these days and uh, we hope that you will stay with us I, uh, I don't usually do it this way, but um, I'm going to ask my guest who is joining me on the uh, program, and she has sent, uh, sent uh, along a book as well uh, to, to, uh, join, to, to be with us. Dr. Chance, I believe, is that correct? Yes, yes, sir. Dr. Gloria. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the program. And... Uh, You deal with some very, um, how can I put this, high-end monetary numbers, so to speak, both figuratively as well as literally. Uh, and you've written a wonderful book. The title of that book is? So I actually have three books. Um, the, the book that I believe we're going to be talking about today is the uh, using the Imagination for Daily Healing or Daily Health. And that's out of a book. It's a chapter in a book called The Female Factor, although the imagination obviously is in all of us. So it's more of a, of a humanity uh, topic. So let's start with the female factor then. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> women seem to be and this is, I, I, I want to be respectful. I have four sisters, so I want to be respectful or I'll hear from them. All right. <laughs> but women are, are truly, in my perspective, coming into their own these days, uh, not just with the Me Too movement, but they are beginning to, um, what's the phrase? own their own power. I think that's the right phrase. They're beginning yeah. to recognize they've always had the power. And now that they're recognizing that they have it, they're using it. 
and and not in and not in a dictatorial way by any means. Uh, they're yeah. they're they're fulfilling their dreams for the probably <clears throat> collectively for the first time, maybe in one sense, in human history. Is that the first assessment? Well, you know, in my research, actually, I do talk a lot about the imagination and and sort of the feminine and the masculine. And so, yes, in general, to your question, I mean, obviously, we have had and we continue to have um, structural or systematic sexism where women, you know, we, we got the right to vote, um, you know, a few years ago. And so we've been on our journey also of owning our own power. But if you, if you look at uh, the human, again, as uh, in humanity, we all have feminine and masculine traits. And what I believe is happening is not only the female gender is rising and transforming and owning their power, I also believe, based on research, that the feminine qualities, the hard, the things that used to be considered soft skills that women were very comfortable uh, you know, sharing and exhibiting, like emotion, uh, joy, uh, imagination, um, intuition, all of those things are what we traditionally call feminine qualities that any person, including a male, can, exi can exhibit and show. And so things like empathy, all of the new skills now that are soft skills are becoming what we call hard skills, which are skills that people, leaders need to learn in order to balance that masculinity so that we bring out the best in humanity. You know, it's interesting that you, you bring that up because as I said, I, I was raised <clears throat> amongst uh, four sisters and a mother and my brother, younger brother and my dad. So we were in the minority. And it's not to say that we didn't have our um, struggles, mm -hmm. uh, you know, our arguments and disagreements but we always were family and i'm not saying that uh we were necessarily right out of a norman rockwell painting but we didn't have the dysfunction in my opinion we didn't have the dysfunction that you see uh in a lot of the um, christmas and thanksgiving dinner movies and television programs oh, sure. we didn't have that um but i learned a lot from my sisters I still stay in contact with, uh, with them. Uh, we visited them back in, at, at Christmas 20, uh, what was it, 2019. Uh, visited my parents and my sisters, and uh, unfortunately my brother wasn't able to make it. But what I saw was what they had made of themselves and for themselves. My uh, baby sister uh, has this unbelievable house. It's so beautiful, it's, it's huge. Uh, over in Mesa, Arizona, a uh, huge backyard, uh, swimming pool, uh, beautiful outside deck. Now, granted, these are all outer trappings, okay? And at the same time, she seemed genuinely happy, mm -hmm. not only with herself, but obviously with her husband. Mm -hmm. uh, doesn't have any kids, but, that, you know, apparently that's, that's fine, too. My eldest sister... Uh, has a daughter and a granddaughter, which makes my grand my mother a great grandmother and me a great grand nephew or uh, uncle I should say grandnephew. <laughs> <laughs> my second oldest sister has two daughters who are 
beyond college already. It's amazing. I, I, I don't remember when they were lies. born. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the one of the phrases that you know, you, and I know that this is something that you talk about too. You just kind of mentioned that as well. Uh, that we we hear about on a regular basis, especially when it comes to men, and that is uh, you know, if you start feeling you know they they criticize you, are oh, you going to cry? Is the big boy going to cry? Mm-hmm. You know, and you're twenty twenty five years old, you know. Yeah. Right. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Wasn't I created with basically the same emotional makeup as the, yes. the, the female of the species? Yes. So, and, and, and what I find so distressed, distressful, and maybe even disgusting, is now with women in, in both politics and business and pretty much every area of our society, which is fantastic, I'd rather live under a matriarchal than a patriarchal society, mm-hmm. i got to tell you. Good for you. Um, women get criticized for getting angry, for getting upset, for crying, <clears throat> or even for laughing and having fun and enjoying themselves and the life that they're living. Whereas mm-hmm. men, are you kidding? Yes. Uh, talk to us about the perceived, I want to say the perceived paradox. Mm-hmm. There, between the the sexes, as it were, and if you see that stereotype changing at all here in the twenty first century, my God, the twenty first century, the Jetsons and flying cars, where are they? I know. <laughs> well, you know, hey, anything's possible, right? So, yeah, you no, know, I would say that, um, and that's a great question. I think that again, back to our history and, and family, right? Back in the, the way, way back in the 12th century, when, you know, we all, you know, the back to the gatherers, right? We had men who would go out and gather food and, and women would stay and they prepare the food and they take care of the children. And, and so we have been grounded in that paradigm and we continue to be grounded in that paradigm today. And so, um, you know, we have the keepers of the information and the holy grail of data, which is what men and the masculinity and women who hold those kind of roles, this is what we do. And so in the work that I do as a peak performance and a psychologist and an imaginist with over 25 years of being in that masculine mind, right, of being an executive in banking, What I know in trying to carry both of those is that in my career, I tended to try and do the traditional male because that's what they teach us. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to say a certain thing. You can't show emotion. And I bought into that like most women did back coming up in a corporate world. We also, uh, we attribute all of us success to behaving a certain way. And that model has been masculine. And so I think the, the opportunity that we have today as the families are finally changing where we have biracial families, we have people marrying other different types of people. And so now all of these very stark black and white traditional roles are merging and they're creating whatever it is that we need in our lives to be successful, to feel loved, and to you know reach our human potential so i think that is the opportunity and the excitement that's happening right now we're talking with dr gloria chance and you're a a mindset psychologist well how's that different from regular psychology 
Yeah, so in psychology, we generally, because the mind and the brain and behavior is so expansive that we generally have to specialize in some area. And so given that I have worked in uh, with high-performing, leading high-performing teams, particularly being creative, um, I work uh, primarily to increase people's performance in terms of the way that they think and the way that they think creative. So um, that's my special area. And so most psychologists have an area of expertise and you want to try and make sure people are clear about the type of psychology that you do. And when we're talking about mindset, there is one in particular that we hear about quite regularly, sounds similar, called uh, <clears throat> mindfulness, mm -hmm. which is sort of being right here in the moment. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of the examples that I use, it's a metaphor more than anything else, is when I'm recording anything on my uh, computer, and I'm sure you've probably seen this, where uh, the voice source music is being recorded. And on and there's a center line. And as the uh, sound is uh, entering the computer and recorded, you see the sound wave over on the left side. Mm -hmm. And you see nothing on the right side. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me that it's that center line that is the now moment. That mm -hmm. once you see the wave, it's now history. It's now the past. Mm -hmm. And everything to the right of that line hasn't even been yet. So that's the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when you talk about mindfulness, is that one of, uh, that? obviously that is one of many mindsets. Mm -hmm. uh, is that an area in which you um, encourage people, you work with people and so forth? Sure. You know, mindfulness, you know, being present in the moment being present with yourself and what you're feeling, how you're feeling, looking towards the future, using your imagination, reducing negative thoughts, turning, changing them to positive techniques, uh, you know, sort of getting rid of rumination and the fear of the unknown, which is anxiety, managing stress, all of those things contribute to a mindset. And we generally want to have a mindset that works for us, right? That helps us. Yeah be positive, stay positive, make very good decisions, mm -hmm. um, have something that we can look forward to. So yes, mindset encompasses all of those. How long have you been practicing? And I, I, hate, I hate that word. I have to tell you, I hate that word. <laughs> because you know, I, I consider myself a scholar practitioner, which means that I research and I'm always sort of developing as well as trying to teach and help people process. And I've been doing this now between seven, eight years. I, um, pr prior to that, in my opinion, practiced because I've always been what I call an intrapreneur, which is, you know, sort of this creative person inside of companies. And what I didn't know at the time uh, was that I was creating this future practice just because I was curious about what made creativity work. And, you know, in the invention of products and different things. And so I've been really a lifelong practice practitioner of creativity, but just, uh, you know, in terms of doing it as a researcher based on science, about seven, eight years. Well, let's talk about creativity. I've heard a number of different analogies. I'm not even going to express any of them. Uh, what is it? Where does it come from? 
So, you know, I, in the work and research that I do, I believe that creativity actually comes from the imagination. And the imagination actually helps us process our subconscious, which, is, which are the things inside of us that we can only get access to through our dreams, through meditation, through guided imagery, that creativity, when we process that information to our conscious, it allows us, the imagination allows us to be creative. So, you know, for me, particularly in life and in business, I believe that the imagination combined with creativity, empathy, create value. And that's what we really want, right? Whether we're at work or at home or we're developing, creating something, we want it to be valuable or have meaning. When you say value, though, you're not necessarily speaking of uh, the bottom line, profit loss, uh, prosperity in a, a financial way. Right. I'm speaking of both. I'm saying that it could be the, the traditional hardcore money value, but it also more importantly could be life value, which means finding meaning in your life, finding purpose in your life. Because there's nothing, you mentioned your sister who has a beautiful home and a husband and she's happy. At the end of the day, prosperity equals and value equals happiness. And happiness doesn't mean that, you know, this sort of idea of you're waiting for something to happen. It is also what you mentioned earlier about being present in the moment. And in that moment, finding the joy in that, finding the peace in that moment so that you have prosperity. And if you can stay there, even when stressors come and you have techniques to move those stressors out of the way, you can still find a way to have that prosperity in the moment. I know too that uh, uh, prosperity comes in many different forms, but many people get caught up in the one form that they want it in, and that would yeah. be cash or uh, extra digits in their bank account. Um, I learned years ago that obviously that is not the only way that prosperity shows itself. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to share that with people. Uh, both on this program and, and in just my day-to-day -day life. Uh, even, even, there are times when, and my wife is starting to get this, uh, that um, there are people who want to help you. Matter of fact, we just watched a movie about that. And your pride can get in the way, oh, no, I, I don't take charity or no, I can't do that. I've got to do it on my own kind of thing. And yet the law, one of the, I, I think it's one of the laws of the universe is that there is always an exchange and that unless there is a giver, there can be no receiver. And unless there's a receiver, there can be no giver. And it may be in cash, check, credit card. Uh, it could be in helping you do something. It could be contributing the materials or what uh, the, 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 the human strength, if you will, uh, to accomplish what it is you're trying to accomplish, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, it seems as though, and I don't know if this is more globally than just the United States, but it seems as though pride really does seem to get in the way uh, for a lot of people from receiving this 
abundance, this prosperity. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. You know, the United States or America was grounded, though, on and has since become one of the few nations that focuses on individuality. And so being individual, that causes us to not look at community. When you have community, you expect that there's some elders, right, who are there to teach you. So that's a form of giving. And as a community youth, you would receive that. And so community teaches you how to grow and how to prosper, how to create, how to be in the presence of others in a collaborative space. When you're individualistic, you tend to focus only on your dreams and on yourself. And yes, many get offended and block their blessings when someone else who has either had the experience or whatever can give you information to help you move forward. But also I would say that, you know, a lot of the work that I do and I find with people is we have these internal blocks in our subconscious around our trauma. And so a lot of times that pride comes from things that have happened to you and you don't trust, you either don't trust, you don't know how to trust, you don't know how to articulate, well, I don't want this, what I really need is that. So it gets a little bit complicated. It's more than being individualistic. It's also about how we process or do our internal work so that we can be open and ready to receive things that are given to us on our journey. So it's a little, you know, it, it's complicated, but I would say it goes back to lack of community. And, and the question for me and the work that I do is how do I help people create that or recreate a community, either with their family, with existing community, so that they, they can get, um, they can collaborate towards creating the life that they want. Give us the name of your website. Uh, I want to get this right. How is this? What is the website that we want people to go to so that they can find out more about what you are doing? Yeah, my website is the Musai, M-O-U-S-A-I group.com. And Musai is Greek for, um, it's the Greek word for um, inspire or muse. Remember the old muses that used to muse people to become creative? So that's basically what I do. I'm a muse. I inspire people to use their creativity to solve problems. Well, I th- that's, that's extremely creative, just in a website type name. <laughs> that's fantastic. Thank um, you. We all, and, and to that end, um, if, if I were to seek out a muse, someone as you say, to inspire. As, and I, as I shared earlier in the program, this being 2020, the year of perfect vision, um, I want people to go within. Yes. To get in touch with themselves. Now, there are going to be those who don't want to do that because for them, it's a scary place to go. Yes. Because there's a lot of stuff. There's a light and a dark side to us. We're very for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, ah, oh, no, 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 I, I, I can't do that because da, 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 whatever the reasons are. And yet, is it important to find an external muse uh, to, to support us, to assist us, et cetera, et cetera? There as is. As well as an internal? 
There is because, um, you know, the reason I wanted to do this work is because I have seen so many people struggling. And I, you know, I grew up poor and I had my struggles, but I was able to make it to be like the first African-American woman at the top of a bank. And I've gotten so many industry awards. I've worked in 10 different industries. And so in some ways I feel like a crazy lady, right? Because I've done all of this stuff and people keep going, well, how do you do all of this stuff? And so I want to share that. I want to inspire people so that, first of all, that they can even imagine the possibility of doing something new and different. Because many of us become robotic and we're very happy. And I don't, there's nothing against a nine to five. We, everybody has to eat and work. But what I'm saying is that there is more to life than that in, in a lot of cases. And that's why you'll find most people when they retire, the first, what is the first thing that, that they do? They go and try and now work on what their, their, their joy is or what they believe their purpose is. Well, I believe, why not be working on that all along your entire life instead of waiting until you retire to find happiness? And yes, yeah, so I, I think it's really important to get that external help so that you can be inspired and catapulted towards a life that you can love and be happy with now. My father said to me, it was probably in my 20s, find a job you love doing because you're going to be doing it for a long time. Don't get stuck like me. Now, just to, to update people, my father didn't get stuck in the mid-late 70s. He went back to community college, got his computer programming degree. And when he, uh, when he got that, he was able to do computer work for the company he was with. When they decided to move to Utah, he decided not to move his family there. So uh, he went looking for another job, and now he had another skill, a computer skill. Um, and I guess for me, I must be following my intuition. I have felt like I've been in the right place at the right time. And I have been doing this for over 40 years. That's incredible. And I'm 60. I started when I was 19. So I'm celebrating 41 years in the business. But I will bet you that the play, the play that I did with cassette decks and recorders, reel-to-reels uh, -reel cassettes and uh, turntables that my father had around the house, these portable things, and I would lay them out on the bed and plug them in and and do little radio shows and things like that. Boy, I wish I had those tapes. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I've just, I've been, on the one hand, I, I would say I've been very lucky, although, again, there is no such thing as luck from the standpoint that if you think you're lucky, it's because you made some really, really cool choices. Yeah, and, and you didn't, you don't live in fear because many of us don't make decisions because we're afraid. We're afraid to take risk. And, you know, uh, back to your earlier point, I believe that our vocation should be our vacation. And I love now it. in the pandemic is now more than ever, we need to reimagine what are the things that we would love to do because we're going to have to get creative around jobs and it's an opportunity to just pause and really go inside and ask yourself, what have I always been wanting to do with my life?
And mm -hmm. if to like what your dad did, is there a way for me to get a certificate online to get a new skill? Is there a way for me to open a business? Can I collaborate with people to do something that is for the good of others where I can maybe get paid for it and I love doing it? What are all of those opportunities right now? This is where we can all make a better life for ourselves, for our communities, and for our families. I just started uh, literally about a month ago editing video. And I'd never done it before. Hmm. And I never really wanted to get into video. However, I am part of a group that is doing basically what's what we call Zoom theater. Ooh. We have a cast. Oh. And Oh, what's that? I'd love to see that. That sounds fascinating. Uh, I believe I'll have to I'll have to get you the link to that. Uh, but basically um, when uh, when we started doing Zoom and of course we record it and then we played them. This was even before uh, I started to uh, uh, compile them. I would have to, we would record it on Zoom and then I would just play it the first time we did it. And I would just play one, do share screen and play one. And then I'd have to then start the second one and so forth and the third one. And there was always a little gap. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that was cool, but it could look a lot better if. So I then went searching for some software online mm -hmm. and I bought the software for, I think about $70. It's very uh, intuitive in one sense. Just a reminder, you're listening to tell me your story. We're talking with Dr. Gloria chance. And uh, uh, I'm curious if I may uh, a pun here. Did you actually take a chance when you first started this, uh, what was that term you used? Uh, uh, imagine. Oh, imaginist. No, no, no. The, the, uh, the, it was similar to entrepreneur. Oh, intrapreneur. Entrepreneur. What is that? What is the, the root, the first part of that, the prefix? So that is, uh, it means that you are a person who works inside of a company. So you're inside. So I entrepreneur. You're inside of a company, but you're acting like an entrepreneur. So it means that, that the company with its structure that is traditional allows you to run around and cause problems with people trying to create something new that most of the time people don't want to hear about. So I worked a lot with emerging trends and emerging technology. So I was always doing something that was more futuristic versus traditional for the company. Well, you know, I, I probably would have to say that I'm in that category uh, because I take on certain projects. We have had uh, the facility that we work in, the station has been there for 15, 16, maybe 17 years, about three or four years longer than I didn't work. In. And they put up on the walls this foam for soundproofing. And it is literally decaying on the wall and some of the panels have fallen off the wall and i thought boy this not only looks bad but it's going to sound pretty bright in here if we don't do something and those items those individual sheets that are like uh, four feet by two feet uh no i take that back they're eight feet long well whatever they are they're very long and they're narrow a hundred or two hundred dollars a sheet and in oh. one room we have like 11 of them 
Jeez. Well, I found these little one foot by one foot squares, multicolored foam. And they're kind of like, uh, you know, Ruffles potato chips. You know, that ri the, the, the wrinkly. Yeah, the ridges. There you go. Thank you. And I went ahead and I bought uh, 96 of them at a cost of about $100 total. And the first set I put up with staples, that's okay. You see the little indentation because it's foam. And I thought, well, you know, I'll try adhesive because I didn't think the adhesive would hold. Mm -hmm. And I can always, with adhesive, if it starts falling off, I'll, I got the staple gun. Mm -hmm. And I put the other set up with the adhesive, and so far, so good. And uh, my boss, he liked the fact that I did that, but he wasn't thrilled and he wasn't upset mind you but he wasn't thrilled with the color scheme i'd chosen which was black and blue for the solution and right. i did it in a checker yeah as a checkerboard mm -hmm. i could have done one frame black and one frame blue blah 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 so it wasn't that he was upset that i did it by no means he was glad that i did it because at least it made the studio look better cleaner mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. professional mm -hmm. uh but he would have chosen i think if they've been all black or they've been all blue, you know. So I took the initiative there. Exactly. Um, Richard, I have a question. Did you collaborate or were you individualist? I did not. It was, it was an attempt to, I wanted to surprise him. Okay. Apparently, apparently it was a big surprise to him. <laughs> but he was, he was happy that I did it, uh, again, as I say. Uh, but no, I didn't really collaborate, although... I did communicate with one of the other employees that we have there, a part-timer who really assists me in a big way. I have to tell you that I trained him a little bit on the, uh, on the editing software, audio editing software. And there are times when I'm listening to his stuff going, I didn't produce that. And I find out he did. I'm going, wow. Cool. And that's another aspect of all of this too, is I don't want to keep all of this information in my head. I do not want to protect my territory because if I do, guess what? I have to stay in that territory. I don't get to grow. I don't get to do other things. Now I'm doing video editing. What happened there? I know. And you then know. you're surprisingly liking it because also we only use 20, about 20% or less of our creative mind. So what happens is the more you allow to let go, then you can expand. And that creative mind is expansion. It allows you to wander around and figure out the joys of things you like, what you don't like, or what you thought you didn't like. And to me, that is what the curiosity is what really takes us to another level. Now, I, I, I need to go down this road with you uh, because it's an important road to go down mm -hmm. because you're not just a woman, you're a black woman. Mm -hmm. And you, I'm sure, because I keep hearing this from every corner, uh, especially on the news and in different programs and so forth, virtually 99.9% .9 of every of color person and especially black people, and by the way, I heard a term or I heard a definition in terms of, well, how do I refer to you? Now, I, I wouldn't refer to you as a black woman. I, I met Gloria, right? Because that's your name, and she's just a beautiful woman. Period. Okay, but 
one guy was uh, he had this program, a podcast called uh, the something like the Uncomfortable Question, something like mm-hmm. that. And his guest was with him uh, there in studio, socially distanced, and uh, he was asking the the uncomfortable question, and he was white, mm-hmm. or at least he was a hell of a lot lighter than than the host mm-hmm. who was who was very dark black. And he says, "What do I call you? African American or black?" And he says, "You call me black because not every black person." or not every, Afri- uh, every black person is African-American because there are black people from Haiti and from, well, from a myriad of different countries. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's, that's an interesting distinction. I hadn't even thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the roadblocks that you have had to deal with, which obviously you've overcome in a really big way because here you are, uh, um, with you've got three books and uh, uh what uh, would we call it a corporation yeah. that you have now well yeah i have a company i have a i'm a co-host on a talk show yeah i've um i've been really fortunate i've worked really and hard. you're still very young <laughs> okay. thank you <laughs> i'm not asking i i know i'm not thank you. Hey, i told you i grew up with four sisters and a mother i'm not that stupid <laughs> <laughs> but tell me about some of the hurdles you have had to overcome I'm hoping more because of your inexperience and your learning and your, your, your curiosity than your sex or race. Well, and you, right. Okay. So let me just first start by saying, Richard, that I, um, I don't believe in race. I believe in humanity. Thank you. And actually, my third book is about imagine. And it's a reflective journey about uh, towards anti-racism. Because the race, black, white, only existed as a construct. It was, it's a political construct. It's the way we divide people. And as humanity, we should not be dividing. We should have people come together. Having said that, I'm sure you absolutely know the answer to my question about if I'm going to use race for this example, I, I'll do that. But as a black woman um, in America, especially I was in, so now you're going to get a sense of my age somewhat, um, I was in corporations in the late 80s, uh, 90s, and 2000s, and um, obviously there weren't very many women because I chose a career in computer science where there were not women and minorities, and I rose to the top of that career in, in that field in healthcare and banking of all places. And so again, full of men as a, a career, full of white men. And so I was generally almost always the only woman and the only black person or minority person in the room. Um, when you ask me how, and, and, it, and it really was a, a, a game of survival in a lot of ways, because I had to educate about things that weren't related to work in terms of how I get treated, how I get spoken to, how I get a seat at the table. I had a lot of amazing allies at the time who were very helpful. But I I can tell you the thing that I had going for me is that I, I knew how to collaborate and I knew how to build relationships with people. And because I grew up in Brooklyn, I knew how to ask for what I wanted. People would say, oh, you're so direct. But being direct was very helpful for me because a lot of women in particular and minorities struggle with 
um, the confidence to be able to ask for what you want. And sometimes you don't even know what you want, which is another issue. However, for me, because I was direct and really in touch with what I needed, I, I, I was very, you know, articulate, not in terms of the articulate, when people say you're articulate, in a negative way, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, she's so not that kind of articulate. Yeah. I was very clear mm -hmm. and concise about what I needed, what I wanted, and I wasn't shy about asking. And so I believe that those things helped me. And also, I grew up in Brooklyn. So I tell people, look, I survived the streets of Brooklyn, so I can survive these corporate streets. That's what I would say. And so, you know, I also had this thing about laughter where in the face of adversity, I would find, I would find laughter. And it wasn't even from a nervous standpoint, what I find it was, it was my way because comedy actually, in my practice, I use a lot of the arts. And comedy actually reduces stress. It increases, you know, positive endorphins. So there's so many great things I didn't know then about comedy, but I, I actually would use that to start tearing down walls so that we could have conversation and dialogue that we needed to have. So, I mean, I believe I went into studying creativity and becoming an expert because you gotta be creative to make it through this life. Uh, especially being a, a minority, but I think in general, being a human being, we, you know, it is not easy being human. It's yeah. not easy to figure out all these things we have to do to, to live in today's world. One of the things that I said to a member of the LGBTQ community on a program that I produce, and I've said this to a couple of LGBT community members, uh, is, and this was after the program was over. Mm -hmm. Uh, I said um, that my perspective is this. First of all, you're a human being. You belong. Mm -hmm. And second of all, if you were born here in this country, and so that makes you an American, guess what? You belong, period. End of story. Right. End of classification. Right. And that applies to every single human being, whether we like them or not. Whether right. we have problems with them or not, right. uh, and, and whether we associate with them directly, such as you and I, or in person, or mm -hmm. whether we see them on the news and they just frustrate the bejeebers out of us or not, they belong. And they have their role and their part to play in all of this, and so do we. Mm -hmm. How do you coach or encourage people to maybe incorporate some of the elements that you just talked about mm -hmm. uh, that get you through those rough spots, especially considering you, you, you made it out of Brooklyn alive. <laughs> right. uh, and, and I have no points of reference there. Okay. I was, no, I, as a kid, no but that as a, is actually a true statement, especially from the time that I grew up. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I was bullied as a kid because I had, uh, I was legally blind at the time and wore those thick glasses mm -hmm. and carried large print books. You wouldn't believe the, the size <laughs> of my dictionary. I'm not kidding you. Uh, and, uh, so that was, that was my, shall we say, baptism, mm -hmm. uh, into an area where, and it took me all of grammar school until I got into high school to realize, actually it's just before I got out of grammar school that I began to realize that the solution to my problem with bullies was don't give them what they want. And that is, I would get angry. I would get frustrated and mm -hmm. I would sort of kind of in a way fight back or mm -hmm. sometimes run. 
Mm-hmm. And as long as I gave them the reaction that they wanted, they would keep doing it because mm-hmm. they knew they could push the buttons. And it wasn't mm-hmm. until I realized, oh, yeah, okay. So I'll stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made a cute little joke once. I was born and raised in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I was born legally blind. Uh, I now can drive, as you already know, because yeah. here I am. I was wondering. Yeah, I'm sitting here on stairs. Oh, no, I have a cane out the window, and that's how I <laughs> from point A to point B. Um, I, uh, I was born in, uh, in Phoenix and I was born legally blind. So what does that make me? It makes me a Phoenician blind. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Yeah, it's bad, but it's mine. Um, okay. but I also, as I got into broadcasting in 1979 and even prior to that, I began to use the term perceived limitation. So whatever that limitation that you think you have is, it's only a limitation if you allow it to be. And that's why I say perceived. And and you think it. It's all in your thinking. Yeah. I was queuing up a record at work one day. Still, I hadn't had my lens implant yet. It was still a few years away. And uh, they noticed how closely I was looking at the needle going down onto the the, uh, record. And they said, what's what's going on? I said, well, I'm legally blind. I said, really? And you're doing all of this? And they were amazed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I even had a group of people come in once. Uh, they did this uh, call-in prayer program. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to come in and lay hands on me to, to heal my eyesight. I declined. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. Because of where I was at the time, I said, uh, I appreciate it. I can't stop you from praying from me, praying for me. But that's not why I'm here. I'm here to serve you, to provide you with the kind of service that you need to get your message out, whether I agree with it or not. I'm not concerned about the content. I'm concerned about the quality so that people then can make up their own minds about what you are talking about. Mm -hmm. This was at a Christian radio station. Mm -hmm. And so there were a a very diverse, (laughs) a very diverse crowd. Uh, And, um, uh, even my first wife, who was totally blind, and I went to one of those uh, prayer tent meetings there mm-hmm. in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still remember the guy's name, R.W. Shambach. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I remembered that. And uh, used the oil and the whole shoot match. And unfortunately, on the one hand, uh, my ex-wife now, she is still blind. Yeah. But um, I still... You know, I still believe that you can accomplish things regardless. I mean, we see it all the time. I know you and I know you do. And so do I. I mean, while I was in Phoenix and I was a a, a member of that group of people uh, who were blind and visually impaired, and I'm still connected to some degree, um, they were accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish, doing the things they wanted to do in spite of or maybe even because of their visual acuity. Bless yeah. you, Richard. What an amazing story. So I think that, that when we start talking about fulfilling our dreams, as I said earlier, you, we give people choices and knowledge, knowledge of those choices. And one of the choices we're giving them today is you, Dr. Gloria Chance. And the knowledge of those choices is this interview that I like to call a broadcast podcast because it's both mm-hmm. on the radio as well as on the internet at SoundCloud mm-hmm. and iTunes and all those other places. 
And I'd like for you to share with our listeners what would be your recommendation for the first few steps that they need to take if what they're hearing from you is impacting them in such a way saying, man, I feel like I'm missing out. I, I, I am at a job that I, I hate doing and, and it's not really what I, and I don't want to wait. I'm 30 years old and I don't want to wait until I'm 65 or 70 to go do my dream job. Help us, help us to get started. Sure. There's something you mentioned about being blind and sort of accepting where you, where you were and embracing it. And I would say that is really the first step, you know, that acknowledgement, accepting, recognizing the problem, defining the problem. And so if you are in a place and you know that your spirit, your intuition is always, has always been calling you to do something different, first acknowledge that. Just acknowledge that there is something different. There is something that is inside of you that's wanting to come forward. Just acknowledge that. And then once you acknowledge it, then spend some time with it. I'm not saying even do anything. Just allow dreams to come. Because when we start to think about that, that, that prompting is our intuition, our imagination saying, it's like a whisper. Hello, hello, do you hear me? Hear me. And so just hear it. Once you hear it, your body, your imagination will take over. You will start to have dreams about that thing. You will start to, all of a sudden, books will show up in your feed that'll say, hey, what about this thing you're thinking about? Start exploring, start researching, then start imagining, gosh, what would it look like if I did this? And then start figuring out, well, maybe I can take one step on that journey. Can I just talk to someone who's doing this today? Let me find out more about what this is from someone who's actually doing it. So I would say the curiosity is how you can start. Listening and then, be, then being curious about it. And on, honestly, if you can do that, a lot of the steps will fall into place from there. You know, the movie I was mentioning earlier, um, whose title, I, I, I'm, I've got to work on remembering titles. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Especially with the own stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the problem is, is we watch so many movies on demand anymore that it's hard to keep track. I mean, I should put a notebook by my bed, a notepad and a pen, <laughs> and write down the title of each movie that we you see. You ever re-watch movies and you're like, I've seen this before because you forgot yeah. the title. Right. Well, uh, my wife does that a lot and so do I. And then so there are times when we recognize that fact and we say, oh, what the heck? Let's just keep watching it. Because you know? it was good the first time. <laughs> right. But it's of this young gal uh, whose mother is an alcoholic, but she's trying to stay sober and she's trying to go through the program. And she's a bus driver for the school. And unfortunately, uh, they are homeless. And they're actually living in a school bus. At night, they go to the bus yard and they get in, in her bus that she usually drives. And they get into seats there next to each other. And that's where they live. Uh, and as the story progresses, you know, this young girl, she's still in high school, senior, I think, junior or senior. She's a singer, but she's involved in, she's working part-time at a donut shop. She volunteers at a nursing home. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that she's doing. And um, then she's also sort of pursuing a singing career through the school. And this 
uh, prestigious uh, institution, I think it's in Pennsylvania, sends her an email saying, um, saying, we'd like to give you an audition. I mean, blows her away. But it's like, I can't go there because I don't have the money for the t ticket. Mm -hmm. And on and on and on. And so she, uh, she thinks, well, okay, no problem. She actually comes up, but she's been saving money. She actually has enough for the ticket to go. Mm -hmm. But on the day that she's supposed to fly out, her little dog, it's talking about these pocket dogs almost, mm -hmm. uh, is not doing well. So she takes him to the vet. Turns out it's going to be $8,000 for surgery and so on and so forth. And so she starts working 70 hours a week at all. She goes full-time at the donut shop. She still goes to the nursing home. She's still working at the food bank or the a soup kitchen, whatever it is. Uh, she still does all of these other things and has, and then has to drop out of school. But she's also been a part of this music group, uh, this, this uh, talent show. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's been doing it for three years. And, well, she can't go. Well, one of her best friends who is just really trying to help, really trying to help, um, she just doesn't want to have, she says, leave me alone. I'm, I'm fine. I will work. And then her mother <laughs> ends up dying in a car crash with another gentleman. And it, they, they, she's pretty sure it was alcohol related. So now she's on her own and it's like, okay, I got to come up with $8,000. So finally the night of the talent show that she'd helped put together and she wasn't going to go because again, she's distraught about her mother, the dog, all of this stuff. And she's exhausted. One of the coworkers says, go be with your friends. Turns out they turned the talent show. Normally they raise money for the school. Mm -hmm. They turned the talent show into raising money for her dog. Oh, they raised six hundred and some odd thousand dollars, six thousand some odd dollars, and then all of a sudden, when they did a refresh on the screen, it was two hundred and six thousand. She did not know where that money came from until she went to the nursing home. Carol Burnett's in this movie. She plays an old curmudgeonly woman. She was the one that gave her the money so that not only could she get her dog taken care of, but she could finally move forward. And she went. For the, I have no clue because the movie ends roughly around the time she goes for the audition. Mm -hmm. But she started to do all of these things, not realizing she had all of these people around her who wanted exactly. to help. We talked about this earlier. Exactly. Finally, finally, she was so exhausted. I think she just kind of gave in because she's working seventy hours a week. Well, but but you know, Richard. But if you do take those steps that I mentioned earlier, those are the that's the magic that happens. Yeah. Right. That if it opens doors, it opens exactly. those doors. It opens doors. It becomes somewhat spiritual. It becomes there is this something that I talk about the the spirit of creativity. There is a spirit. Creativity isn't just about something new. It's about birth, right? It's about birth and rebirthing. It's about things dying. A lot of times, our old thinking and our old way of being has to die and be rebirthed into this creative aspect of ourselves. And so creativity actually does bring in all of those, those special spirits or the magic, whatever you want to call it. It, it changes us, us because we become a part of, we're all connected anyway, but we yeah. become a better part, a larger part of that fabric because we are saying yes to creating a new version of ourselves. You know, I'm doing two things right now that I have wanted to do for a long time. Number one, first and foremost, is doing these interviews, doing tell me your story, doing something that I think really matters. 
I'm hoping makes a difference in the lives of people. But the second thing is, I'm sitting here in my truck on Stern's Wharf, looking out at the boats docked, anchored out in the, uh, out in the uh, water. And looking at the ocean, feeling the cool breeze coming through the window. Um, this is part of, this is part of uh, the dream. Now, what would be better than this if I was sitting out on a wharf in my truck uh, on a wharf in Ireland? but see you're imagining and you know for me i remember imagining things like i mean i was like this little kid in brooklyn and i'd be like oh i wonder what it's like to be on a private jet you know you watch these movies you sleep oh yeah doing this stuff and in banking i had the opportunity to be on private jets and i remember scratching my head one night and going oh i can't really believe this is happening this is what it wasn't like my dream dream but it was just something that i wondered about so that the imagination again gives us it allows us to put something in our mind that could actually be possible what, um, uh, what does that what does that imagining start i i, I want to say the equivalency of on a biological a physiological but more on a metaphysical level what does that what does that ignite, if you will? You know, um, I think it, 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 it ignites this map because the imagination is really a set of stories. So it creates, and it also creates these stories that you have internal. And, you know, a lot of research says that what you think internally is actually what manifests externally. So it is so important to dream in your mind, dream big, dream about things, especially with children. I think adults should do it, but definitely we generally wipe out kids' imagination at two because we're trying to teach them rules and rules, you know, kind of on the left side of the brain don't help the imagination, although they're needed at Mm -hmm. two. So I would encourage, you know, parents to while you're trying to teach kids, you know, rules and how to have manners, which are all good, also keep their imagination active so that you don't shut them down at such a young age and they don't dream about the possibilities for their lives because that's what's happened to us. So we should every day be dreaming. We should keep a book of dreams, a book of all the things that if we could, you know, wave a magic wand, we could do or be. Because when you can do that, when you do that, you'll start to see a thing in those dreams. Now, I remember the line of a song, something along the lines of, what do you do? when all your dreams are fulfilled, something like that. And and the first thought that came to me was, well, if today, if all of the dreams that I have were to come true, then I would dream of something else. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) For sure. Because I don't even know that if all of our dreams, then I would dream for other people. Yeah. Right. Um, Dream for the community. um, If I'm done with myself. Yeah. I actually uh, was interviewing a gal many years ago. Her name is, uh, she goes by the name of Sark, which is an acronym. And she's got some great books. I haven't talked with her in a long time. I have to get a hold of her. But she was sharing with me in an interview a story of a 94-year-old woman that she was 
helping. She would come over and to the house and assist her and doing different things. And this was this woman was sharp as a tack. I mean, she mm-hmm. was smart and witty and all of these things. And they had great conversations, she said. And there was nothing wrong with her. She had no terminal illnesses. She had no mental illnesses of any kind. Uh, she was perfectly healthy. But one day she came to my friend and said, I'm done. I've done everything that I want to do in this life. I'm ready to go. And I, I remember when she told me this, I thought, well, don't we do that? Especially, for example, when we uh, buy a new car. I'm done with this old car. I've had it up to here with, or I want to upgrade or what have you. And no problem. Mm-hmm. But when we are, if we get to that point where we say, you know what, I'm done. I love my parents dearly. My father's it just turned 89 this year. My mother will be 86 uh, September of this year. And I don't know. And I've, I've not asked them. I've wanted to, uh, how much longer they'd like to live and, and so forth. And what is it that keeps them going year after year? My gosh, they've been married 60 almost 70 65 66 years something like that mm-hmm. and uh and they've got their children and their grandchildren and a great grandchild or two and i'm i'm guessing that's probably part of it mm-hmm. uh, pandemic hasn't helped because they stay sequestered at home yeah but why is that so wrong for this 94 year old woman to say i want to go I well, want to go and experience I mean, other things. I wouldn't judge it as being wrong. I mean, yeah. you know, in the research, especially in grief research and psychology, it says that we all kind of know how we want to die and in some ways when we want to die. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't know her circumstances, if she has family, if she has grandkids and people who, like your parents, are probably here because they now want to help those folks with their dreams, right? They want to help the rest of the family you know, uh, reach their dreams. So that's something else to live for. But I think that it is perfectly fine for people to feel that, you know, I'm, I'm happy with my life and I'm good. Um, now, hopefully it's not to the point I would want to check out to make sure she's just not suicidal in terms right. of saying that, you know, I definitely have to check that out. But um, I think that people get can get to a point, although it's probably fairly rare. It's not common that people. No, say, no, no. I, I would say it's very rare. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So that's a a great place to be as long as there aren't any other pressing uh, psychological issues. And to that end, um, I would take it that you probably hold a philosophy that we are we are not our body. Right. That it's that essence, whatever that is. And I've even seen a documentary where they've actually tried to measure it from the point before death and the point after. They actually weighed a person mm-hmm. before their passing. They, this person was terminal. Mm-hmm. And then after, they actually lost like, I don't know, two or three or five or ten grams or maybe more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's like, oh my gosh, maybe, yeah. maybe. Uh, there is a certain physical weight to that essence that, that illuminates this, this physical apparatus. 
Yeah, you know, in research around where they combine at the intersection of psychology and physics, there's something that some researchers call the morphic field. And mm -hmm. it's where we have more of the sort of psychological, it's a field, it's not physical. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, that could be part of, I'm not familiar with that uh, piece you're talking about, but that could be yeah. part of the weight. The measuring there's definitely sort of a separate field of um of energy and how does the spiritual or metaphysical world or philosophy play into the work that you do not specifically as a mindset psychologist but overall in the work that you do to support and assist and help people Oh, sure. No, I definitely believe in mind, body, spirit. I believe that they three go hand in hand and particularly around the body because the body carries our trauma. And so that's why today and with the pandemic, you see minorities and people of color having more of the comorbidities because we, from slavery and all the trauma we've had passed down to us, we continue to live in that same trauma, which we carry in our body, which creates stress, which creates heart disease, diabetes, blah, 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 and, and it goes on and on. And so in order to resolve those things, we have to A, stop the things that are traumatizing us, right? Which is a systematic racism, et cetera. But we also have to then deal with shifting our mindset or else those traumas will continue to be in our thinking. And so in order to become, which I also do holistic, I believe in mind, body, spirit as becoming whole, in order to become whole, you have to deal with all three and understand how they connect and relate to one another. Yeah. Well, I find it fascinating and enlightening when I come across, because it's, what I, it's, the, it's the group of people I associated with early on in my career, uh, when I come across Christians in particular, um, whether they be fundamentalist or Lutheran or Episcopalian or Gnostic uh, or mm -hmm. whatever the case might be, um, when they start stepping outside the nine dots of that particular philosophy and experiencing other things, we watched a piece, uh, a movie the other night on, Medjug uh, on uh, Fatima. Mm -hmm. I know the story of Fatima, but it was kind of fun to watch this again. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I remember um, that story, especially when I was producing, when I was working at that station, I was producing what was called the Radio Family Rosary Hour. Now, it was only a half-hour program, but they called it an hour. <laughs> and uh, basically, the program would start out with the respective rosary for that I guess it was for that day, whether it was the glorious or the sorrowful or the, I forget the third one. And I would produce that up and then they would have a little story or homily at the end of it to round out the half hour. Mm -hmm. And I would produce those up every five of them every week. Um, and I remember somebody, they gave me a little book on Fatima. And these miracles. And I found the movie interesting because the parents at first, there's no way that you saw, you must have been hallucinating or someone's playing a trick on you and so on and so on and so on. Talk to us about, talk to us about miracles. Mm -hmm. um, in, in your, from your perspective, what's a miracle in the work that you do 
in working with people as opposed to the sum of the choices we've made is why we are where we are. You know, I, again, depending on your belief system, you know, your spiritual belief system or the God that you pray, higher power, um, miracles can be different. But, you know, as you were speaking, what immediately popped in my mind is the miracles that I see in my work is the power of the imagination. The power when people realize that that higher power being is also inside of them and that if they can do their work and understand themselves that there is power and miracles in that. Like, you know, someone who like for what happened with you to do what you were able to do and then to be able to see where you, you couldn't see and then you could see. That's a miracle. Now, while that's huge for someone else, being able to stand up and speak in public may be a miracle because they are afraid. They have, you know, this incredible fear of speaking in public. So I think that being able to have um, the manifestation of things that are obstacles, we've talked about that this entire time, things that get in your way, to have those things moved out of your way, to have a mountain moved and to see your part in it as well, that you gain some knowledge or some type of a magic or miracle inside of you to help make it happen is very profound. And then that leads to more miracles happening in your life because you understand your part in it and how to get out of your way. Because even if you're religious and you pray to God, you know, you still got to do the work. You can't just sit down and expect miracles to happen. You have to do, you have to have action. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple more questions here before we wrap up. One of them has to do, you mentioned it earlier, with education. I am a huge proponent of education, but not necessarily institutional education. Mm -hmm. I've probably acquired my PhD in diverse studies just by virtue of, A, doing this program for as long as I have, interviewing people for 40 years, uh, producing programs where hosts bring in the diversity of guests that they've brought in on a myriad of different subjects. Um, there probably isn't a subject uh, you could name that I haven't been a part of producing or interviewing on. Mm -hmm. um, talk to us about how important education is, and even if you can touch upon it, what type of education you would either A, recommend, or maybe it's more a question of perception of what education is. Yeah, and so in the work that I've done in business and the community and, you know, some of the businesses I support now, um, you know, I believe in workforce development. And, and what that means is that, to your point, you don't have to have a degree and we don't, uh, degrees aren't required for everything. Degrees meaning you got to go to school and go get in debt and do all of that. But trade schools, I actually, at, for a short time, was the president of a gas pipeline company. And um, what we, there are all types of welding, you know, trades and, you know, all of these uh, mechanic, all of these physical 
Um, not just for men, women can go out and get these trades as well. But there's a lot of uh, computer skills and things that you can do where you can go to trade school just to get the actual skill. And a lot of these things you can act even do online today. So I really encourage those because there's actually a shortage in those areas. Um, I also believe that to your point, you can get a PhD. A PhD means that you are an expert in something by just being involved in it. Now, obviously, Richard, being a black woman, again, for me, education was important because it was my ticket to get out of um, the neighborhood that I lived in in Brooklyn. It also was my license and my ticket to be able to become an executive. And so it depends on what your goals are. There are certain fields like you couldn't, although people may try, uh, you can't really, shouldn't be practicing psychology without the education and degree, given the, you know, the way it can impact humans. But I'm a big proponent of, um, of learning, obviously, and being curious and, and, you know, the best educations we can get are not in the classrooms. You know, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Uh, I have, <laughs> I have, uh, like I said, just been educated in so many different, and I've gotten my comeuppance from time to time. I've had guests who have challenged my, my uh, philosophy and principle, and I don't have a problem with that. Uh, matter of fact, I was, I was sharing with someone a particular philosophy, and they said, well, let me, let me give you my twist on that. To which I responded, well, there goes one of my straw houses burnt to the ground. <laughs> but you know and that you know, well, but that's yeah. what you want. You want to be open and not so yeah. rigid so that, well, maybe someone can teach you something where you go, oh, maybe I'll reconsider that. Yeah. That's a big part of learning, too. Yeah. Second uh, question has to do with the times in which we live, and this sort of ties into education as well, but the plethora, the 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 dumping upon us of so much information and much of that information is untrue it's false it's inaccurate and the list goes on um whether it's and it, it comes from the top down so how do we i don't want to say combat it how do we offset that so that we're dealing with uh, for us as individuals we're dealing with the truth of things does that make sense yeah and the truth is a hard thing right now for so many reasons and the reality is is that i think the truth has been allowed to be challenged because it, there hasn't ever really been a truth so in the work that I do in mythology um, basically says through the imagination that when people see data, when they see images, they create a story in their mind. And that story, Richard, is really based on your history and your background. So you and I can see the same thing, but because I grew up in Brooklyn and you grew up wherever, and because I'm black and you're not, we're gonna actually interpret it differently, right? Someone could be reaching their hand up, like a police officer could come up you and I will have a different interpretation of why that police officer is there. So that's the problem with the truth, is that we have now found that actually my truth may be different from your truth. And that is actually really true, but we have expected news, which is what I'm thinking you're talking about, news and things that we see online to have, you know, a semblance of truth, that it's grounded in that. 
But yeah. because now we all individuals are online, we're bringing our individual truths to bear. Yeah. And it's causing and wreaking all types of havoc because now there are 7 billion people in the world. We have 7 billion versions of the truth. And so I think that what we have to do are basic things like, um, you know, making sure that at least what's printed is coming from what we call a reliable source, which then that's even questioned nowadays. Yeah. But I would yeah. say reliable sources are like we do in PhD school. They're at the root. What is the root source? So if we're talking about health information, a reliable source is the CDC, right? Mm -hmm. Or the, um, you know, if we're talking about psychology, a source would be the Association of uh, Psychologists or Psychologists and mm -hmm. so on. So I think it is going to be important. We're going to have to actually discern and sift through what we believe to be true. And I think that, that organizations like Facebook, Twitter, who manage that information, and they're starting to do this now, are going to have to start categorizing and also sifting through to make sure that, you know, that whole perception of what's true gets managed somewhat. Now, I just want to bring this up as, as a point of what you just talked about, because I think it's important. I saw the entire front-to-back uh, uh, video, for example, of uh, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. At one point, he was actually in the police car. Mm -hmm. And then they took him out. Mm -hmm. There's never been an explanation as to why they did that. Mm -hmm. Then I've heard, I don't know if this is true or not, the toxicology report came back that he had three times the normal level of fentanyl in his system. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here going, what does that have to do with anything? Why did they take this man who was not resisting out of the police car, lay him down on the ground, and put their knee on his neck? Mm -hmm. Just because he may, and I say may because I don't know, I wasn't there, I didn't run the toxicology report, just because he may have had that amount of fentanyl in his system. Does that mean that he would have died if they left him in the, in the, in the squad car? Well, you know, I, this is, you know, and this is the kind of, yeah. yeah, this is the kind of Cause this is what I'm hearing on conservative in particular. And I don't want to get political here, but that's what I'm hearing on radio and television from certain circles. Oh, he was a dead man walking anyway, but she still, he still, still shouldn't have died under those circumstances. But, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, what in the world has happened to our society where we minimize, I mean, with COVID, how many, 186,000, maybe by the exactly. time this interview airs, 190,000 human beings. Exactly. Humans, not numbers. Exactly. Died. Human beings, right. So talk, talk to us about that. Well, you know, first of all, I would say that uh, no one gets to be the judge and the jury and the execution and the executioner. So in the George, George Flood, I always say his name, Floyd, wrong, uh, Floyd, George Floyd, I would say that in or any of the black men being shot, that no one, we have processes that aren't fair for mm -hmm. people of color, but at least we still in all of the unfairness should not be getting killed. 
because there's a process. You get arrested and you let the courts, as much as they might have their own problems, take care of it. So even if you're a dead man walking, then let me walk and die. You don't have to help it along. Right. So um, I would say that, again, the meanness that you see and the sort of dehumanizing people, that's why we talk about Black Lives Matter, because somehow in the justice for all, it doesn't feel like we're included in the for all. In the, um, the, you know, every man is equal, doesn't feel like we're included in that at times. And so that's why Black Lives Matter. I would say, but the meanness is around empathy. And that's why I do my work in the imagination, because empathy comes from the right side of the brain, which has the imagination, joy, emotions, and we're disconnecting from our human, our basic human the thing that makes us the most human out of all species is our, our ability to empathize. And so either we're becoming monsters and animals and we're moving away from our humanness or we're just outright mean. And I, I, don't, I believe in humanity and I believe that we can find that empathy. Well, I certainly can understand and I do appreciate and I agree with your position of uh, there is no race, we're all human. We're all human. Um, I will say this uh, in regards to this systemic problem we have. I'll tell you from my perspective, just as an observer, okay, the superior, if we're going to go with race, the superior race is the one that's being uh, uh, um, brutalized. That's the superior race because the other side of the coin is. What the hell are these people afraid of that they have to do this to other human beings, let alone people of color? Well, and you know, you know yeah, and, you, and I, I go ahead. No, when you mentioned Richard earlier about um, the bullies, yeah. that's really what we're talking about is bullying. Bullies yeah. are usually afraid. They have something to fear and they're trying to protect what they're afraid of losing. And so I believe that's what's happening today, that we are in a situation where we have the dominant culture being afraid. And the reality is, is that most people of color, we just want, we just want to be treated equally and be human like everyone else. We don't even want to take anything that anybody has. We just want the part that is rightfully ours. But in general, people who are in dominant positions have power and, it's, and are still being mean and vicious usually is because of fear. Yeah. And that actually makes them the weaker group. Uh, as it does. you found in bullying. Yes, when yeah. you're being bullied. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and I, I know very little about, and, and I speak specifically here of the, the African country and uh, the, 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 the people who lived there centuries ago. What little I do know is about their culture is is uh, that they had some incredible uh, libraries and other institutions of, of learning and so forth um, and and, uh, and rich cultures and they were diverse because you had different parts of the country just like in the United States mm -hmm. you have different cultures here in the West than you do in the Midwest than you do in the Bread Belt or Central or Eastern parts of the country and even North and South um and it's like my gosh where was all of that being taught in my world history class in grade school and high school i know you know and then you're talking then china's the same way 
And India is the same. Every country, every continent on the planet has a diversity of cultures that we just, for whatever reason, we don't want to learn about. And yet, that's part of what makes up the United States in particular okay. is the, the diversity of cultures that have been incorporated, whether we know or not, whether we know it or not, or are aware of it, uh, into our uh, homogenistic, uh, semi-homogenistic culture. Well, Doctor, you, uh, yeah. go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was going to say, Dr. Gloria Chance is my guest. Uh, she is a mindset uh, psychologist. Give us the website again so that people can continue their own personal evolutionary process. Uh, yes, it's the Musai, M-O-U-S-A-I group.com. Musai meaning muse. The Musai group.com. We will be linked to your website so that people can uh, do just that. They can continue to learn more, educate themselves and so forth. And we hope that, uh, that, that folks will do just that. I have three final questions for you before we wrap up our interview. And uh, before I do that, I want to let our listeners know that uh, you can hear this program 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on Sundays and 1 a.m. Monday mornings. On, uh, and it's streamed live at richarddugan.com. You can also, you can also uh, uh, hear the podcast broadcast uh, on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, Blueberry, and other places that folks are reposting our interviews to. And I thank those folks for doing that. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, we do have PayPal and Patreon accounts for your security as well as ours. And then we ask you, please participate in 2020, the year of perfect vision. Uh, without your supporting that and getting involved in that yourself, you are truly missing out. And we've talked about it over and over again on this program, this specific program, but throughout the year and since September of 2019, that you can't go wrong. I guarantee you that you will benefit from going within and listening to that still small voice and finding that peaceful, calm place that will, that will just comfort you and it'll warm your heart, I guarantee you, uh, and share that with others as well. All right, so for my final three questions, and I thank you so much for joining us. The first one is, who is Gloria Chance? Oh, um, so I am, I actually say I'm a brown girl from Brooklyn. I still see myself as that little poor brown girl running the streets of Brooklyn. And I was just able to imagine and create and soar. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I actually want to help people imagine new possibilities, create new opportunities so that they can soar to their highest potential. And finally, what is your life's purpose? I think it's all, you know, and this is, I think what I'm saying, all of these things should be connected. And my life's purpose is to create new opportunities so that people and I can continue to be on the path of my greatest human potential. And I do that through creative, helping people and myself be creative and to expand our creative thinking and our creative minds. Well, I support you in all of that. I hope that I continue down this particular path of creativity, innovation, 
reinventing myself. That seems to be also be a key, especially here in uh, 2020, uh, where our lives have been turned upside down. And it's not a question, in my opinion, observation, ladies and gentlemen, of getting back to normal. And it's not about getting into the new normal. No, 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 no. It's about learning how to reinvent yourself. Our human bodies, trillions of cells, are changed out completely every seven years, according to medical science. Well, you don't have to wait seven years. You can reinvent yourself now. And I thank you so much, doctor, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast podcast, love to love.